I heard an interview with an anesthesiologist. Hopefully I can just say that once, anesthesiologist, who had just written a book, which uh, I don't know if that's a gripping read or not. Sounds like something that would put you to sleep. There you go, okay. So, no, I didn't hear that joke made during, but uh, the, 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 the <laughs> I didn't even write that down. The, the, the anesthesiologist told the sad story, though, of a transplant patient who died. While the teen was 18, the state health care provided expensive, uh, expensive medication, cost $20 a day. On the 30th day of the month in which the teen turned 19, though, the state no longer funded this uh, uh, teen's medication. The, the anesthesiologist summarized what happened next. And he was choosing to save the money for something else and stop taking it. And nine days later, he's back in our care. Ultimately, the transplant failed. The patient was put on a non-retransplant list, and then he passed away. Now, why that student didn't take his medication is obviously a complex issue. But I'm sure that we're all disturbed by this story of this life-saving transplant that was ultimately wasted. Right? A transplant that was wasted. If you were the recipient of a life-giving transplant, would you take whatever medication it was necessary, whatever the cost, to stay alive? I imagine most of us would say yes. I'm sure you'd feel a certain responsibility for your new organ as well. Perhaps someone died who gave that to you. Perhaps someone else died while waiting on that same list. When you've received a gift like that, you want to be a good steward of your new lease on life. I imagine you'd want to make the most of your life to maximize upon your new heart or your new lung or your kidney. When Philippians 2 verses 12 through 13 this morning, the Apostle Paul motivates the Philippians to make the most out of their salvation. To make the most out of their salvation. And we're going to use the word again and again this morning to maximize upon it. Open your Bibles to Philippians 2 verses 12 through 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This morning we're going to look first at the command to maximize your salvation, to make the most out of it. And then we're going to second look at seven ways that Paul motivates them in these two verses here to do so. Motivates them to make the most out of the salvation that God has given them. This uh, command to work out their salvation was exactly the focus and challenge the church in Philippi needed at this point in its history. See, the church was about 10 years old at this point. It was about 10 years ago when Paul first preached the gospel along the river outside of Philippi in ancient Greece about 2,000 years ago. But as many of you know who, who have been saved for a while, over time, it doesn't have to happen, but it may have happened to you, your passion for growth and godliness may go from a boil to a slow simmer. You don't have the passion that you once did. You don't work at change quite as much as you once did. Maybe some of you here this morning have become complacent about how your sanctification has, has progressed. 
Maybe you've accomplished some of your goals. You're not maybe committing as many of those major guilt-inducing sins. Well, like you then, the Philippians needed to be challenged to maximize upon their salvation, to make the most of it. This command is perfectly placed in this letter as well. See, Paul had begun in chapter 1, verse 6, and you can turn there, Philippians 1, verse 6, and he says this to them to encourage them. For I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He begins with this good news, and now what Paul does in Philippians 2, verse 12, is he tells them how this completion is going to happen. It's going to happen as they work out their salvation with fear and trembling. In verses, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Paul reveals how he was praying for them. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Huge verses there of what he was praying for them. Well, God's going to answer that prayer that Paul makes for the Philippians through their efforts at maximizing their salvation. God is going to use their work and their effort to make this prayer come true. In Philippians 1, as we see in, in, in the rest of the verses from uh, verse 12 on, Paul points, to, points them to his own example of single-minded devotion to Christ. He rejoices, and we saw this in verse 20. He says that Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And this is not proud. He's not just saying, I perfectly glorify Christ. He's saying, no, the pattern of my life is that it's been a continual one of exalting Christ. Well, why does he say that? Again, in verse 21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's not just Paul's personal testimony. See, Paul's uh, really building for them a picture of what it looks like to maximize your salvation. Paul's a great example of that. In chapter 1, he models for them what working out your salvation looks like. It's someone who is all in for the glory of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 27, and all this is to show that when we get to Philippians 2.12, it is well-timed by Paul. In Philippians 1, verse 27, he commands them, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in a way that's appropriate, in a way that matches up. See, the Philippian church was going through struggles. It was squeezed from opposition without and was starting to fracture from within. And so whether that command was like in verse, uh, uh, in verse 27, to strive together for the faith of the gospel, or what we've seen in verse 2-3 of doing nothing out of uh, out of uh, selfishness or empty conceit, Paul had really presented, presented a very demanding picture of maturity, not just for them as individuals, but for the whole church. It's a very demanding picture of what a mature Christian is, of what Christ-likeness is. And this maturity would only come through effort. This maturity would only come through effort. Now, that's not the only thing it would come through. And we're going to see that. Among other things, it would come through Paul's prayers. It would be an answer to prayer. But it would have to come through effort. And that leads us to the command of, verses, of verse 12. The command to maximize. 
to work out your salvation, to maximize, to make the most out of it. When Paul says in verse 12, and, and, and the reason why I'm jumping to the command first, because it's really the focus of the sentence. I'll, I'll read verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's the command of this verse. It's the focus, to work out. The idea there is doing something to get results, it's to bring about, to produce, to create until something is completed, until something is finished. It's to work at and to finally accomplish a task. It's raising a child to be an independent uh, adult. It's tilling and, and sowing and fertilizing and weeding and watering a field until harvest time. It's pruning your apple tree or maybe your citrus tree until it's productive. It's rebuilding your classic car until it's roaring on the highway. It's managing your investment until you've reached your financial goal. It's working with the end in mind. Working until that goal is reached. You know, it is interesting to, 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 to read through Philippians, and I would encourage you to, 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 after today's message, read through it again and see how much is Paul presenting them a picture of what the goal is. How much of that is why he opens up his heart to them and talks about his motivation and how he seeks to proclaim Christ. I think he's giving them a picture of what the goal is. And we're going to see later in chapter 2, he gives pictures of his peers, of, of, of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I, and I think what Paul is doing is showing them what pictures of what the goal should be like. Yes, their giftedness is different. Their calling is different. But look at their hearts. Look at their passions. So read, read, read through Philippians again with that in mind. What is the goal of our salvation? What are we maximizing upon? So the opposite of working out our salvation is really laziness. It's being spiritually passive. It's losing your focus and getting sidetracked. It's, you know, instead of running someplace, it's just being on a, tre on a treadmill. It's getting stale and to lack ambition, to letting your spiritual desires atrophy. It's not having a clear picture of what maturity is. It's just checking in as a Christian weekly. And maybe that's by coming to church or going to church and care group. It's, it's, it's not having any goal in sight. So as Paul says here in, in verse 12, what is it we're supposed to work out? We're supposed to work out our salvation. It refers to our rescue, our deliverance. Now, the believer, the person who comes to faith in Christ, has already been rescued. He's already been saved. He's been saved from the punishment of sin. He's been saved from the power of sin. We see that in Ephesians 2.5. By grace you have been saved. We were dead in our transgressions, our sins, but we were made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's past tense. It's something that is finished, that is completed. We have been saved. Ephesians 2.8 says the same thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not because of works that we have done, but by believing in Christ alone. Titus 3.5 has the same past tense focus. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not because of our good works, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration of him giving new life and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We see in those verses there that salvation is something that, 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 is, that is completed. 
We're going to see, too, though, that salvation is still in process. But maybe you're here this morning, and you know that you need to be saved. You know that you are facing consequences for your sin. You know that you need to be rescued because you have offended a holy God. Well, there's hope for you this morning to be saved. God is saving people still. Romans 1.16 talks about how we are saved. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news that God became a man so that sinners could be saved, so that Jesus could take the punishment of sinners, so that we could be given his perfect life. We've already talked about that this morning. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you are going to be saved, it is only through Jesus Christ. God does that. He saves, he rescues, he delivers. But there's also the sense that we're still waiting to be saved. We're waiting, and, and verses talk about that, like Romans 5, 9, and 10. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. It's something that's finished. It's something that's completed. Those who are, believe in his son have been declared righteous. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It's something we're looking forward to, that final rescue. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Because Jesus lives, we too will live. We have the certainty to look forward to. That, that, that salvation that we already have is a certainty in the past is going to be completed and finished. Romans 13, 11 says that salvation is nearer to us than, 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 than when we believe. That what God had, had started in us when he rescued us, we're still waiting for the final reality of that in our lives, for that to be a finished and completed work, for us to be who we forever will be. Now, Paul doesn't mean when he talks about our, our, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He doesn't mean that our salvation is uncertain, but that the effect of it on our lives is not complete. See, the believer is between the already, what has already happened, and the not yet, what will happen. We've been rescued from the power of sin, if you believe in him. We've been rescued from the dominion of sin. But we're also waiting to be rescued from the presence of sin and from the influence of sin. So Paul's purpose here is what our responsibility is between the we have been saved and the we will be saved. Between the what God has done and what he will do. And we have responsibility at this point. It's to work out your salvation. To maximize upon it. To make the most of it. See, it's not enough to look back and to think about what God has done. It's not enough just to think about how terrible it was to face judgment or to be enslaved in sin. It's not like someone who's just been saved from a burning building, sitting on the curb, and just thinking, wow, I'm so glad to be out of that burning building. And that's good for a while, right? I mean, you might even sit there stunned for, I don't know, a couple hours, maybe a day. Eventually, though, you have to go on with your life, right? Now, should you always be appreciative? Of course. But God saved you for more than just looking back to what he has done. We are to think about what our Savior has given us now. Deliverance and eternal life and a new nature and freedom to obey. We're supposed to maximize upon that, to make the most out of it. To become, as soon as possible, what we always will be. To live our saved life to its fullest capacity with as much obedience as possible. So when he's talking about working out your salvation, he's talking about accomplishing as much as possible with your salvation. 
accomplishing as much as possible with your salvation. To love God as much as possible. To bear as much fruit as possible. To proclaim Christ as much as possible. To be, to be as, as much benefit to your brothers and sisters in Christ as you can be. To be all in. To, 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 to maximize upon your salvation. Now, that is what it means to work out your salvation. To bring it to completion. To, to get as close to that finish line. Not of being saved. Being, that you've already been saved, but as close to what you're going to be like in eternity as you can be, to stretch out your neck and to aim for the goal, for the finish line. Now, Paul wants you to be motivated to work out your, your salvation. So really, I think what he does before and after this command in verse 12 is he motivates you to maximize your salvation. We're going to see seven of those. We're going to see seven motives. And some of them are going to be real quick. No, that's probably not true. Some of them are going to be quicker, and others will be longer. Some of them are real personal, and some of them are theological. Okay? So let's start with the first of those motivations. The first one is the example of Christ. The example of Christ. And we're going to see that in our first word here, verse 12, so then. That's one word in the Greek. Therefore. So then. Therefore, it's looking back, and we have to figure out how, how far back is he looking. And really, I think that he's looking to all of verse, verses 6 through 11 there. Now, not saying it doesn't go back further in the letter, letter but at least verses 6 through 11. And I'm going to read that. We'll start at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to use selfishly for his own advantage, but emptied himself, and then he tells how he emptied himself, by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have to ask ourselves exactly when he says, therefore, so then, which part of that is he looking at? And I think because of what comes next, so then, my beloved, just of you, is always obey. He talks about obedience next. And so I think we have to go back to at least verses 6 through 8. So let's look at those first. And we see here the first motive is the example of Christ. As we look at verses 6 through 8, there's a ton that, 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 that could be said. I preached a couple sermons on verses 6 through 11. I'd encourage you, if you're new, to go back and listen to those. But what stands out in this section is this selfless, humble obedience of Christ. And really, you can't help but read it and not think how unlike him we can be. See, God the Son embraced the will of God the Father. Christ wasn't passive in his obedience. He wasn't directionless in his obedience. He didn't come to earth as a tourist. He didn't come here for the experiences to see what the locals ate. He didn't veg each night watching Netflix. Right? He came to do the will of the Father. Hebrews 10 verse 7 quotes from Psalm 40. Then I said, 
Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it has written to me to do your will, O God. Jesus, God the Son, came to earth to do the will of God. John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I am here to obey God. That was his purpose. Now, Christ had no salvation to work out, right? The sinless one never needed to be to be delivered. But he did maximize upon being man. He made the most of being a creature. In his obedience, Jesus, Jesus showed us what it means to be a sinless human. One who woke in the morning to obey. Who eagerly looked forward to what God's word was calling him to do. He made the most of being a creature. He delighted in the directions that his father had given him. And he obeyed even to the point of that shameful death on the cross. See, Jesus' example was one of purposeful obedience. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have been united with him through faith, if he has given you new life, you will one day have that same kind of obedience. You, you will just be eager in heaven for any more commands that God may give you. You'll love them. You'll, you'll, you'll just be, be waiting for the assignments for that day. What does God have for me? But now we have to choose, right? So we should maximize upon our salvation by striving to be like him. For our food to be the Father's will. To obey selflessly, humbly. And completely, as Jesus did, to make our life one of obedience, not passively. Not just staying away from sin, although that's good. But saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I obey you as much as possible? Now, that's definitely included in this so then. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed. He looks back to that obedience of Christ, but he doesn't stop there. So first we saw the, the, the example of Christ. We also look at the, at the exaltation of Christ, and that's our second motive, the, the exaltation of Christ. And, and, and I've touched on some of this, uh, but that's still part of, uh, of verses 6 through 11 as we look at verses 9 through 11. In verses 9 through 11, Paul discloses the dramatic conclusion of human history. He shows where the final scene is going to be. As all creation, all, all sentient creation bows before him, before his son. And I think that as we look at the scene, and I'm going to read it again, we're, we're, we're going to see four ways that we should be motivated by the exaltation of Christ to maximize our salvation, to make the most of it. Verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think that the first way is to look that God was faithful to reward the obedience of his son. Christ was rewarded for his humble obedience. And Jesus likewise promises, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He promises that in Matthew 23, 12. In Revelation twenty two twelve, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. God is faithful to reward the obedience of those who obey him. 
So I do think that that's why Paul's looking back here. Look forward to the reward that is coming. God will honor you as you obey him dependently, as you maximize upon your, your salvation. There's another way I think that the exaltation of Christ uh, is motivating to us, is that we do see Christ exalted as judge. In Acts 10.42 it says, he, uh, he orders us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, that Jesus is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. We know that everyone will bow before him, that everyone will confess that Jesus is Yahweh. And there's just a simple question of how do we want to come into his presence? Do we want to come into his presence with him saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master? But how many confessing believers are not sure what Jesus is going to say to them? How often, and I've heard you say, say this, well, I think my parents are saved. See, it's really sad, and whether it's our, our parents, those among us here, you know, and people who say this, you know, their parents are, are, are nearly in, in, indistinguishable from the lost. And maybe they are saved, maybe they haven't, but they failed to work out their salvation. Maybe there was a huge change at one time, and now they're just kind of coasting. They're not maximizing upon the salvation that God has given to them. They've forgotten that they're going to appear before their Savior. The exaltation of Christ also motivates us, and here's, here's a third one, because Christ in this picture is living and victorious. Christ is living and victorious. His victory over death and sin is the source of our confidence that we can work out our salvation. Christ lives. If you believe in him, you've been united with him. You can obey too. It's, it, it's impossible. Now, Paul doesn't, doesn't spell this out here, but he uses this phrase again and again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We have been united with Christ. So when we see a living, exalted Christ here, that's good news for us. We can change. As he lives, we live like Romans 6, uh, verses 8 through 11 says. If we have died with Christ due to, to, to our old way of living, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, verse 9, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is going to live forever. If you are united with him, you have new capacity to obey. Our union with the living, exalted son is the source of our ability to work out our salvation. We are plugged into Christ through his spirit indwelling us. This is good news. We can obey. A fourth way that the, uh, we're encouraged to maximize our salvation is that the exalted Christ is interceding for us. And again, it's not specifically said here. But there is hope that Jesus lives, right? When Satan comes before God to accuse us that we don't deserve to be there, Jesus is interceding for us, right? When, when, and you might be looking at this past week or this past month and seeing all kinds of sin. You might be looking at the past years and saying, I have not been working out my salvation. I've been coasting. I've been floating. I've been wasting my time playing video games. I've been doing all kinds of things. We have a Savior who will intercede for us if we have true faith. When we fail to work out our salvation, it doesn't change the fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
God the Son is still a man. He suffered. He was tempted. And he is sympathetic. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that is something encouraging for us as we look at the exalted Christ there. He is there to help us, to intercede for us. Romans 8.34 says, Who is the one who condemns? I mean, in a sense, I could condemn myself. My wife could definitely condemn me. Many of you could condemn me. You could bring a list of sins that I've done. But who is it that condemns us? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's good news, right? So yes, you're going to be challenged this morning to maximize your salvation, to make the most out of it, to to complete it, to, to, to get in your life the purpose why Jesus died. But there is hope in the fact that Christ is exalted. There's motive there. And I think that's why Paul starts with this therefore. Look at the example of Christ. Look at the exaltation of Christ. And then he he gets personal. So some of that is theological and eternal. It's weighty and heavy. But now he gets personal and a little bit more historic, his history with them. So motivation number three, there's just an encouragement that comes from discipleship. Encouragement of discipleship is our third motive. Philippians 2.12, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. Now, Paul would be perfectly okay to go through this section, and I'm going to read it with, with kind of skipping through that phrase. So then, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? And that would be a fine thing to do. Nothing wrong there, but he doesn't, does he? Instead, he calls them my beloved. He knows them personally, his loved ones. Some of them, and of course, we don't know how many of the original people saved when when he went to Philippi, how many of them are still in that city, but it's fun to imagine, right? It's fun to imagine that one of those there is Lydia, whose whose heart God opened by the river when when Paul first preached the gospel. Or maybe one of those there is the Philippian jailer or members of his family who got saved on that night when when God rescued Paul and Silas from, 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 from prison, and the Philippian comes in, the Philippian jailer comes in thinking uh, he's ready to kill himself because all the prisoners are escaped, he thought. And instead, uh, Paul says him, no, stop. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe he's one of those beloved that Paul's talking to. See, Paul is, is, is empathetic with their struggle. He knows working out your salvation is hard. That it requires humility and dependence and effort. That dying to our desires can feel like dying, right? It's like it's hard to say no to ourselves. Paul is not lording it over them, but coming alongside them. They are his beloved, his loved ones. And he encourages them about their track record. He said, just as you have always obeyed. See, the church in Philippi was a healthy church. Yes, they are facing some, some struggles. They're having some problems. But they were a healthy church. They were a sacrificial church who was faithfully devoted to Paul. They were eager to obey. They were teachable. They were hopeful. Paul, Paul doesn't blast them for anything. He encourages them. He loves them. They had obeyed. You know, but, 
by God's grace since coming here, uh, I can say that you are my beloved. You know that you're John's beloved and the elders. You know that you love one another. I just don't want to just try to say, oh, Paul says that to them, but there is an encouragement that comes with walking one another, right? And discipling one another. As you are in care group with one another, you love one another. Your care group leaders love you. The elders love you. And I think that they would say along with me, I've been encouraged by your obedience, right? I, I, I've seen, seen some dramatic changes since coming here. If people have just faithfully obeyed, you are a people that I've seen again and again who are willing to do what God's word says. You're willing to take wise counsel. You have a love for God's word. You are devoted servants. You are devoted to one another. I love how much time you love spending with one another. That eventually someone has to turn off the lights around 2 o'clock and make people leave. There's many, many sweet things about the church here. But we want this to be true in the future too, right? We want this to be true for the next 20 years of Cornerstone. We want to be known as people who have always obeyed. So we can't become sluggish or apathetic now in our efforts. Some of you have been saved a while. Don't take your foot off the sanctification pedal. Keep cultivating your sanctification gardens. Keep seeing good fruit grow. We want to be able to say next year, just as you've, you've always obeyed. And the year after that, just as you've always obeyed. And 20 years from now, just as you've always obeyed. How few churches are there that that can be set up? So Paul encourages them. We see the encouragement of discipleship is a third motive. There's also an, an, an exhortation of discipleship. And that's a fourth motive. We see that in, the, in verse 212. He's still, he's still speaking very, very personally to them. Just if you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And this is where he does start exhorting them here. See, Paul knows he can't always be there. Now, he's, he's very hopeful. Now, we remember this time that Paul's in prison. He's waiting trial before Nero. He doesn't know what Nero is going to do, but he's hopeful. And we see in Philippians 2.24, And I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. He's fairly, he's fairly hopeful he's going to be, be, be able to be there again. But yet the Philippians' obedience couldn't be dependent upon Paul's presence. He could be executed. He knew that he wouldn't always be able to be with them. So Paul reasons with them, if you obey when I'm there, either there in the past or on or, or an upcoming visit, how much more so in my absence? And in fact, it's actually even more important for you to obey when I'm not there. Right? Because you have to obey when Paul wasn't there to come alongside and to encourage and plead and urge and exhort in, in the day-to-day -day lives. Right? They needed to be faithful when he wasn't there without the presence of their, of their founding pastor with the possibility that he could be executed. See, if God's kingdom is going to advance, and we know that Jesus promises it will, but through this church, one generation has to pick up the baton from the previous one. Just as Paul knew that he wouldn't always be able to be there, today's elders won't always be able to be here. You must take seriously the charge to work out your salvation, to maximize upon it, to make the most out of it. 
You have to take seriously that. Why? Because some of you are going to be next generation's elders. Because our kids, all of the thousands of them over there, need to see our example as we work out our salvation. We're going to have to be disciple makers. See, and I think Paul had, had a view to that. Like, like, not just in my presence, but much more in my absence. You guys have to be prepping for this. So now is the time to make the most out of your salvation because you are going to have to encourage someone else to maximize upon their salvation. And by God's grace, they're going to encourage someone else to maximize upon their salvation. That's how God's kingdom keeps advancing. Let's look at the fifth motive now. And so we we really look at the first couple as the uh, example and the exaltation of Christ. Then we got personal with with, with Paul's discipleship of the Philippians. Uh, The last three are going to be of the Father. Motivation five, the expectation of the Father. Motivation five, the expectation of the Father. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It calls them to maximize their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling are words that sound just like you expect them to, right? These, these same Greek, Greek words are used in the Septuagint, uh, and, and, and several times they're, they're, they're used together. I'm going to read a couple so that you get a sense of the words. These are Paul words, not my words. In Exodus 15, 16, they're, they're, they're used together to describe how the nations responded to Israel as they were coming out, out of Egypt. Terror and dread, and those are those two words here, fear and trembling, fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. That's a pretty vivid picture of fear and trembling. Or in Isaiah 19, 16, in that day, the Egyptians will become like women. That's not very PC. The Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts. Again, that trembling and dread. Psalm 2, 11 through 12 has, those, has these same two words. Worship the Lord with reverence, with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, these are Paul's words, fear and trembling. And this is specifically here how they're supposed to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. But obviously, when you talk about fear and trembling, is there motive implied here? There is a motive implied here, and it's the expectation of the Father. It naturally overflows from, verse, from verses 9 through 11, as we saw the exaltation of Christ. We're going to have to give an account of what we've done, of what we've done with the salvation that we've been given. The reality is unavoidable. There's no back doors into heaven. We don't get to skirt around the judgment seat of Christ. There's no hoping to be on the periphery of the crowd, kind of unnoticed in the mob. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. God expects you to maximize upon your salvation. So what have you been doing with the salvation that you've been given? If you've been working out your salvation, no doubt you're here this morning, and, and, and I trust by God's grace you're looking forward to judgment, right? It's good news. Yes, there's a sense of sobriety with it, with fear and trembling. You've been entrusted with something incredible, but you're looking forward to to, to the reward. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you've been maximizing your salvation with fear and trembling, 
with a view to giving an account to, to Christ for the life that he's transplanted into you. You'll have reward to look forward to. This is good news. But if you have been refusing to work out your salvation, if you haven't been taking your master's return seriously, if you've been trying to just skate by, you're not going to be comfortable at the thought of judgment. Maybe you're even a little nervous because your life doesn't look like one that's been saved. Your life isn't looking like Jesus' life. Now, everyone knows that the person who's received a liver transplant shouldn't return to the bottle, right? The lung transplant receiver must not purchase cigarettes. But the same is true as they've been given that new life that they shouldn't just spend their time wasting it watching television or surfing the internet, right? There's a sense you've been entrusted with something valuable. So make the most out of it. See, you weren't rescued for good enough. You weren't rescued just to stay away from big sins. The Father has standards for His children. It's holiness. It's to be devoted to Him. To be completely committed to Him. If God has purchased you with His Son's blood, He expects a return on that investment. It's not harsh for the Father to expect you to maximize upon your salvation. Remember, it's the wicked, lazy slave that thought his master was harsh for expecting a return on the talents that had been given to him. Right? The faithful stewards looked forward to the master returning because of what they've done with the talents that they've been given. So what have you done with the salvation that, you, that you've been given? Now, Paul includes this phrase, fear and trembling, not so that you become incapacitated by fear, right? Not just so that you sit in the corner of your room, shaking, dreading Jesus' coming back, because you've done so little with your salvation. It's to be motivated, to look in faith at the Father who loved you, and who chose you, and who purchased you, and saved you, and yes, will judge you, and to say, I want to get most out of the blood of Christ that's been shed for me, out of this new life that's been given me. I want to bring him glory. I wasn't rescued to play farm games, or whatever computer game, phone game we're playing, or, or, or to pursue fine dining, and to make expensive purchases, that wasn't what the blood of Christ was for. Now, can we be thankful for the blessings that we get? Yes. But what is the purpose and the passion to maximize upon the salvation that you've been given? If your son were a fireman, now imagine first that you've got a son. He's a fireman who gives his life rescuing a teenager from a burning building. You know that that fireman gave his life for this teenager. How would you feel as a parent if, if, if that rescued life just squandered their life, pursuing porn and drugs and embezzling cash from their workplace, or even, let's just say something more benign and playing video games, wouldn't you feel like the, the life of your son, that fireman, had been wasted? Like, 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 is that what he gave his life for? So we, I think, instinctively feel that, right? right? Like, like, like that sacrifice was made. So let's make the most out of it. How much more should the God of the universe expect us to make the most out of the salvation his son has given us? That's why fear and trembling are meant to be sobering words. The blood of Christ was priceless, right? 
So fear and trembling, I think, is a sobering motive. Uh, the next motive is just mind-blowing, okay? And we, we see that next in verse 13, the energy of the Father. So we just looked at the expectations of the Father. We also see the energy of the Father in, in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. Now, here, Paul gives his most bluntly stated motive with a reason for. So for means for. Here's the reason why you should be working out your salvation. And the emphasis and the emphasis on the, on the Greek that it was written in is like this. For the one working in you is God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for the one working in you is God. That's mind-blowing. Yes, God holds you to a high standard. He expects you to make most out of the salvation you've been given. But the one working in you is God himself. The sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who spoke all those stars into existence, is working in you if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have the new life that Christ has given. He's working in you to energize you, to be active in you. It's active in you. The word for working here has a sense of effective work, of accomplished work. There's, 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 when God is working in you, it's, it's not a, a, a futile work or, 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 or a vain work. It's not trying to rake leaves on a windy day. I don't know if we have leaves here. Rake? I don't know what palm trees have. But you can imagine that, right? Or trying to get your kids sand free at the ocean. How many of you have ever done that? Like, we like our car, there'd be no sand in the car, right? That is a futile work. That is not going to work. That is not how God is working in you. It's the word for work that God uses in Ephesians 1.11. How those who have been predestined according to his purpose, talks about God's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's the kind of work, Right? God gets 100% of his will accomplished. That's the power working in you if you are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 21, talks about the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That is the kind of working of strength we're talking about. The kind that raised Christ from the dead and then exalted him over everything for all time. That's the power of God working in you. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 talks more about the power. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And, and I, I, I didn't even think about saying this here. But, you know, it's important. When we think about working out our salvation, we, we might have some goals. God is able to do way more than that. Why? According to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. His power is working in us. Now it says, both to will and to work. Attention is drawn to both of these in the Greek. They're both important. One is not more essential than the other. To will doesn't just simply mean wishing. It means a determination. God is working in you to will, to be determined. To work, as, as above, it's the same word work. That God is working in you to work. And it's work that's effective, that's achieving, that's going to accomplish its goal. 
God accomplishes in his people both the desire and the ability to work out their salvation. Now, since he's the one who gives both the desire and the ability, only he gets glory for our maximizing upon our salvation. Working out our salvation is his work. But it's not that he wills for us. It is his work. But he doesn't desire for us. And he doesn't do the work for us. We are responsible to do both, to will and to work. Willing, like working, is our responsibility. I think sometimes we know that working is our responsibility. We just kind of wait to get zapped with the willing, right? Like, like I know it's work to pick up my Bible, but I don't have the desire yet. So I'm just going to wait till God zaps me because he works to will. And, no, we're the ones who do the will and the working here. We may have to stir up a desire for, for obedience. We may have to work to be determined, to put effort into wanting. Paul's point isn't that we should just wait for the, till we feel the supernatural working of God before we work out our salvation. Instead, it's about our recognizing that our willing to work and our working to will are the result of God's divine enabling, his supernatural energizing. Our working to will and our willing to work are God's working in us. The theologian John Murray puts it this way. Because God works, we work. And we know he does that, right? right? Okay. Because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our parts is the effect of God's working in us. We have here not only the, ex, the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. It's not just explaining how this happens, but there's incentive here. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. And that's the end of the quote there. Really interesting. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. So the question is, have you been persistently active? Have you been working to will and to work? That's incentive. The God of the universe is working in you. It's going to work. Why? Because it's not an it. It's a he. He is going to work. He's going to accomplish in you. You can work out your salvation. You can will and to work sanctification because of him working through you. Now, Paul includes verse 13 as motivation to effort and not to justify our apathy or to blame God for our lack of desire or effort. Do you want to see God do a miracle in your sanctification? Then maximize your salvation through determination and effort. Will and work. If you work out your salvation, you will see God's supernatural intervention in time and space. You will see a miracle in your transformation. Like God is really doing miracles in our lives. That, that's exciting. You get to see that as you will and work. So how is God working in you to will this morning? How is God working in you to will this morning. 
Are you today seeing the work of your salvation? How to work out your, your salvation? That there's more that can be done? Have your eyes been opened up a little bit to say, yeah, I know, I need to progress more. Perhaps you're thinking of a weed in the garden of your holiness that needs to be uprooted. You know you need to take care of that sin. Or maybe there's a plot of ground in your life that's currently uncultivated. It could be growing fruit for God's glory, but it's just sitting there. Maybe some time on the weeknights, your Saturday. Relationships at work, maybe relationships with your parents. You, 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 you've got a plot of ground that's not doing anything. It's work out your salvation there. Maybe you have the beginning of a desire. It's not even full will yet. It's just starting. But you're thinking about how you could replace palm trees, which I try to find out online if palm trees have any value, and I don't think that they do. But they're inoffensive, they're pretty, and they need to be trimmed, right? Which describes well most of our hobbies, right? Inoffensive, enjoyable, and they need to be trimmed back. But instead, you could be cultivating fruit trees, Trees, nutritious, life-giving fruit. You could be accomplishing more with the salvation that God has given you. Today, God is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure if you are saved right now. Let's look at our last motive here, the enjoyment of the Father. The enjoyment of the Father. Philippians 2.13 Describes why God does this. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. And it just says in the Greek there, for good pleasure. But I think it makes sense. For it's, it's for him. The Father's purpose for working in you is the sake of his pleasure. See, he's pleased when we work out our, our salvation. When we demonstrate the value of his, the son's sacrifice, when we evidence the reality of the Spirit's indwelling presence, the Father is pleased. Now, our obedience can, may not be perfect obedience, but it can be true obedience. We have the capacity to be pleasing to him. Romans 8.8 8 describes those who don't know God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Colossians 1.10 Describes us walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects. 1 John 3.22 describes those who do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We can be pleasing to God. Not completely pleasing, but we can be truly pleasing to him. See, our Father is going to be pleased by our efforts to proclaim him as Jesus did, and to pray like Jesus did, and to love our neighbors like Jesus did, and to bear one another's burdens like Jesus would if he were here. It's going to bring the father pleasure. Imagine a dad who loves carpentry, teaching their kids how to do their first project. The dad enjoys that child's effort as that child desires to please his dad. Maybe the dad is taking some pictures uh, along the way. Maybe a friend comes over and he's excited to show the progress. It doesn't matter how perfect that final product is, right? The father is pleased with that son's or that daughter's effort. Now imagine even more if that child learns to love that hobby, right? Learns to crave doing carpentry too. Even better, that's, that's the a little bit of the kind of pleasure our Heavenly Father gets as we love obedience, as we work at our salvation. 
as we desire to become what he created us for, what he's given us the ability to become, like his son, Jesus Christ. This is about the Father's pleasure, the Father's smile. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling is a good thing. The Father will be pleased. So as we end here, have you been working out your salvation? Have you been maximizing upon your salvation? Have you been active with this gift that God has given you? See, our salvation is not supposed to be like a retirement fund that we automatically deposit money into and never think about again. Right? It's not just you take, you take some money out and it goes into account and you check it every year or so and hope it gets bigger. And not that I've ever done anything like that. That's not what our salvation is. It's not just checking in. It's not just going to church and going to care group. Instead, our salvation is more like a startup business. It needs effort and vigilance, care and management, examination and long, exhausting hours. Now, that's not, it needs the effort to stay open, right? It's not about staying saved, but it's about maximizing the potential of our salvation, so are you a sanctification entrepreneur? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yes, anyways, you guys know the word. I started on that one. Uh, are you entrepreneurial with your sanctification? Are you maximizing on the Father's investment of his son's blood, of the Spirit's presence in your new life? Are you making the most out of it? Are you trying to bring him as much reward as possible, as much glory as possible? Have you been exercising initiative and effort in becoming like Christ and expanding his kingdom and bringing the Father pleasure? Have you been maximizing upon the salvation you've been given? We began this morning with a sad story of a failed organ transplant of someone who couldn't or didn't buy the medication needed. There's lots of reasons that organ transplants fail. And a lot of them have to do with, with, with medication. It's not the only one. There's many drugs to take, and it's easy for transplant patients to forget which ones. The drugs are expensive, and affording them can be difficult. The drugs often have side effects, and the transplant recipient wants to avoid them. They're tired of all of the side effects. There's many different reasons why that transplant fails, but the side effect, but the effect is the same. The new organ becomes wasted. So as you leave, are you wasting your salvation? Or are you working out your salvation? Is your salvation is effective at being minimized in your life? Or are you maximizing? Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, these are um, incredible truths, and we are humbled. We're humbled by the fact that your son would die for us. We're humbled by the fact that your spirit is indwelling us. We're humbled by the fact that you receive pleasure through our, our obedience. And we confess, Lord, that often we fail to work out our salvation. We are okay with coasting. We can take our sanctification easy. 
we find acceptable just avoiding major sins, Lord, instead of embracing this new life we have in Christ, instead of embracing his likeness, instead of embracing the advance of your kingdom, Lord, we fall short of saying, like Paul, for me to live is Christ, or to rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. We fail to consider others as more important than ourselves. Father, I pray that you would be working in us as a body with fear and trembling, aware of the great salvation that you've given us, aware of your power working in us, that we would work out our salvation, Lord, that our free time would be your time, Lord, that we would be totally devoted to becoming as much like Christ as possible, to loving our neighbors like Christ would, raising our children like Christ would if he had children, discipling one another as Christ discipled his disciples. Lord, we just want to be, to be all in. Father, we are not worthy of this, of this investment, but help us, Father, to live worthy, to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Father, we do pray uh, for those who may be discouraged. I pray, Father, that they would be encouraged if they are in you, they, they would be encouraged by the potential of your smile. Lord, by the power of you working in them. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help them to be resolved and, and even to get the, the, the help and the encouragement needed from the brothers and sisters here this morning. Would you pray, Father, for those who haven't been saved yet, Lord? Who, if they were to die, would be before you in judgment, Lord. I pray that you would have them turn to you. Lord, we see this beautiful picture of a, of a dramatically different life being lived for your glory. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would usher them into that new life through faith even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.